You're listening to a free preview of the Brief Premium podcast. Welcome to the Brief Premium's first podcast from the Times newspaper. I'm Francis Gibb, the Brief's co-editor, and I'm with my colleague Jonathan Ames. Shortly, we will be joined by the leaders of the three branches of the legal profession in debate over what lawyers want from whichever party forms the next government on June the 9th. Also with us is our most recent Lawyer of the Week, Kirsten Shovel, who will tell Linda Sang about acting in the traumatic case of Pippa McManus, who committed suicide. But first, what's on the legal agenda? The big issue of the week, Theresa May wades into traditional Labour territory with proposals for a radical expansion of rights in the workplace. On the professional front, Lee Day's misconduct tribunal rumbles on with its star attraction, Martin Day, taking centre stage to admit that the firm did not obtain medical advice regarding the cause of death of Iraqis in the Battle of Danny Boy claim. This week, his partner, Sapna Malik, gives her evidence. Divorce is still a hot topic, with a ruling last week that seals London's reputation as the divorce capital of the world, as a judge awards a former wife a record-breaking £450 million after a full trial. Pressure continues, meanwhile, for an overhaul of the divorce laws. Proposed reforms of court sitting hours that would bring something equivalent to late-night shopping to the justice system are likely to trigger divorces among lawyer couples. Leading barristers, including the chairman of the Criminal Bar Association, have lambasted the plans as being especially unfair on women lawyers with families. On the political front, one woman in the law whose future is in doubt is the Lord Chancellor. The Bar Council effectively called for whoever forms a government after the general election next month to replace Liz Truss. A reshuffle is more likely than it was, but who will replace her? Her party breathed a sigh of relief on the verge of the deadline for announcing constituency candidates as the Crown Prosecution Service said it would not bring charges of election fraud against several Tories who stood in the 2015 battle. However, one file is still being investigated. Meanwhile, leaders of the legal profession caught general election fever last week as both the Law Society and Bar Council issued their own manifesto wish lists for the next government. Apart from wanting to see the back of trust, barristers called for the reinstatement of legal aid eligibility in family and housing cases, and the solicitors agree. However, the Law Society was silent on trust, perhaps hedging its bets. In the city, boardroom nerves were twitching after a high court judge ruled that legal privilege did not apply to internal investigations carried out by companies attempting to assess whether their staff had been involved in fraud and corruption. Good news for the serious fraud office. Finally, legal profession structures are back in the spotlight as Kent County Council this week launches the first ever private law firm that is wholly owned by a local authority. And the once mighty figure in legal education, the University of Law, revealed some fairly dire profit figures in its annual accounts. And now over to those three leaders of the legal profession to talk about what the lawyers want from the general election. It's almost impossible not to notice that uh, Britain is in the grip of election fever. We've had referenda, we've had local elections, and now we are moving on to a general election only two years after the last general election. What do lawyers want from the government that is formed on, the, on uh, June 9th? 
whoever forms that government. Uh, with us to tell us what lawyers will want is Robert Bournes, the president of the Law Society, the body that represents solicitors in England and Wales, Andrew Walker QC, the vice chairman of the Bar Council and chairman-elect of that organisation, which represents barristers in the jurisdiction, and Millicent Grant, who is the president of the Chartered Institute of legal executives. Let's start with uh, what's broken recently this week, which is the um, what the papers are calling Red Theresa, Red Theresa May. She's adopted uh, some very uh, almost Labour-like, Miliband-like uh, proposals for the reform of, of employment law, not least uh, allowing people to have more time off to, uh, up to a year, I understand, for um, for carers and also looking at uh, reforms to the very controversial area around the gig economy and uh, and the status of workers. Um, first of all, uh, you know, do Robert, we go to you first if you don't mind. Um, do, does this sound a bit odd coming from a Conservative Prime Minister? I think uh, recognition of rights in employment is uh, is always a positive thing. Uh, our concern would be the impact that we saw in the last government of the enormous increase in issue fees on ap applications to employment tribunals. So it's one thing to give people rights, it's much more important to give them the ability to enforce rights. So what we'd want to see the an incoming government doing is actually taking steps to ensure that people can take steps to enforce the rights that they have. Mm. Andrew, I think that's probably something the bar has, uh, has agreed with, isn't it? I mean, the, the position on, uh, on tribunal fees is, 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 is something that exercises lawyers uh, across the board, I think. Uh, ab absolutely. I mean, it's clear from the figures. I think was the Justice Select Committee reported in uh, 2016, we've seen a drop of nearly 70% in the number of cases brought to employment tribunals. And no difference in the levels of success. So contrary to what was being suggested, that this would remove all of the unmeritorious claims and leave the meritorious claims in place, we find that it's meritorious claims that are being kept out as well. So it's not, and it's not just a question, I agree with everything that, that Robert said, of um, access to justice. It's also a rule of law issue. There's no point Parliament giving rights to people if Parliament in the same time can take away their ability to enforce them. That in itself brings the rule of law into disrepute. Indeed. Millicent, I mean, I expect your members, legal executives, are very much on the ground with some of these employment tribunal cases uh, acting for clients. Um, any th I presume you, you, you have a similar view on that, but um, how, what, are the likelihood, what is the likelihood of uh, this sort of legislation having much of an impact, whereas the, uh, the, your, your colleagues here say um, you know, it's, it's almost worthless unless you can enforce your rights in tribunals? I think it's very good that um, the current uh, government are actually looking to preserve and improve workers' rights. Um, I agree with Robert and Andrew in that actually they need to be able to enforce those rights because there's no use improving the rights without improving the ability to enforce them and costs have been a restriction on that. Sorry, Andrew, um, the bar is always uh, assumed to be very close to government because and, um, <coughs> never, 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 you know, never, never short of a few barristers in, in in Parliament. I mean, what are the chances of the, of the of the tribunal fees being being rolled back? Well, if if the announcements today are are correct and we see them in the manifesto and we see some legislation, then I think our position would be well, logically, you have got to make these rights enforceable, mm -hmm. uh, and if you have made existing rights unenforceable, then it's going to be a waste of time bringing in yet new rights. Now, um, I'm not sure that we do have, any, have as much influence as you suggested. There are rather fewer members of the bar in Parliament these days, perhaps, than there might have been at one time. But I'm sure we'll be making that point forcefully.
Now, Robert, um, it sort of leads on to the to the issue around legal aid. I mean, it's a very similar point, really, because legal aid's been very significantly, and, it, and this is not by any means a, a party political um, point, because legal aid's been sliced and diced and reduced by consecutive governments. Um, both the Law Society and the Bar Council were very, very firm in their manifestos, their pre-election manifestos, looking to restore uh, legal aid certainly in, uh, or the eligibility certainly in areas around housing and family law. Uh, what are the chances? We uh, have been told repeatedly, haven't we, that there is no more money. Uh, what we're trying to work on with any incoming government is to continue this overarching access to justice theme. Actually, so looking at how things such as public legal education uh, and other um, ways of uh, trying to mitigate the impact of the absence of legal aid. We are very sure that um, where we want to see the focus is public funding for early initial advice because we believe that can stop some of the displaced activity and cost that goes with people being denied access to that advice so that they no longer understand what rights they have, what remedies may be available to them. Um, so um, without uh, we, uh, wanting to uh, reduce our call for properly funded public service, if, if we look at it much more as part of that overarching access, then we can draw in such things as the impact, as we were talking about of issue fees earlier, the impact of proper legal education and information, the ways in which court process can be amended to make it more intelligible for people, um, how it ties into the uh, availability of public data. But there is still a place for public funding. And if it is properly applied, and it should be properly applied, then it can impact uh, uh, beneficially um, on access. And we think that it's reasonable to expect a government to play its part and recognise its responsibility. Andrew, I'm uh, at the risk of uh, throwing a, a bit of a spanner in a cosy relationship here between <laughs> the Law Society and the Bar. The, um, the, 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 there has been a little bit of friction in relation to criminal legal aid and... Um, you know, the 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 uh, the proposals to um, to reform and to 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 uh, streamline legal aid in criminal law. Uh, are you in the law society? Do you feel? I mean, obviously, um, uh, Robert, you can come in on this as well. Are you on the same page now with this? I mean, is uh, the 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 grailing reforms were effectively kicked into touch by Michael Gove? Um, what's your view of where we are now? What would you say to government about uh, criminal legal aid? Uh, I think we'd say something similar to what we'd say in relation to LASPO. The, the truth of the matter is there have been year on year for the last decade ongoing cuts, even if simply by not increasing fees there is an ongoing cut going on. And we know that there are um, long-term consequences that are beginning to be seen, for example, in the number of um, junior members of the bar under five years' call. We can see the impact of reducing fee levels in crime. Um, I'm sure that the Law Society and we, and we are um, at one, that you need to fund the criminal justice system properly. We know there's a problem with the judiciary. We know there's a problem with the courts as well. You can't leave any one th of those three elements out. So there needs to be more funding. Um, there needs to be long-term a recognition that the bar cannot and solicitors cannot spend their time working for the same amount of money year on year and in some cases less money year on year. Mm -hmm. Now, so far as things are recently, uh, one can try to make the existing pot of money um, spread in a more uh, even way and in a more logical way, but the reality is there still isn't enough money. We continually make that point. Whether we will get any more money, um, that's a difficult one, but one can but ask. It sort of leads on, in a way, um, to um, 
an issue around the structure of the legal profession. I mean, I think at the heart of some of the re proposed reforms, uh, albeit the, they are now fading into into the into the mist, but was that you know that, that, that there should be a sort of a one-stop shop for criminal uh, uh, litigation and advocacy. Which, as I say, leads us on to a discussion of where the profession feels it is now uh, regarding the structure of, of, of legal services. I mean, Melissa, maybe you could tell us whether you think, uh, from your position as legal executives, you know, now getting much more recognition in the legal profession than they might have had at one stage. I mean, would you like to see a sort of ironed out legal profession where you have lawyers uh, who qualify and uh, have equal recognition and some do advocacy, some do litigation and um, you know it's a, it's a much more simpler and streamlined um, uh, process. Well chartered legal executives have been um, lobbying to be recognised on a par with barristers and solicitors as well and they're recognised to the extent that they can become judges. There's an artificial bot bar in that so they can only go so far so we think it would be a good thing for them to be levelled out because it would help the government to meet some of its objectives especially in terms of diversity and social mobility in the judiciary so that's a consequence of levelling it out as you put it mm. so if legal executives are recognised on the same level, then that would help the government to achieve its objectives. Mm. Now, Robert, I mean, the, the, the Law Society and solicitors, you know, lobbied for 20-odd for years for, uh, for, for, for the, the dropping of the bar's monopoly on high court advocacy rights. I mean, I, I suppose you can't, uh, you can't argue with the legal executives wanting equal recognition? I can't argue at all. I mean, where we seem to be going, what we'd like to have is a proper time for a discussion about what is the nature of regulation. And it was developing under a former Lord Chancellor, Michael Gove, um, where he promised there would be consultation that would lead to independence of regulation from representation. Um, I'm absolutely sure that we, and you look at the paper that was published by the Legal Services Board, but the government of any view is unlikely to have the time to pick it up and consider it carefully and properly. What I'm concerned about is, is our, our professional standards, um, whose ever they may be, because we want those standards to operate effectively in the client and, uh, which, uh, and the public interest. I think one of the things that has been overlooked, but I think government is beginning to uh, remind itself of the significance of practitioners and professionally qualified practitioners as a network of provision of advice to the benefit of the public. But I mean, just, I mean, very quickly, if you wouldn't mind, um, is fusion still a dirty word at the bar? Do we not have effectively have a fused profession now? Or would you say to the government that you know they've gone far enough in fusing? Um, well, I'm not sure that there's been any attempt so far to fuse, and I think we would continue to oppose that. And I think there's, there's a, there are very good reasons for it, and good reasons that you can actually see in the way the market is uh, working at the moment. I mean, you asked him a moment ago about a one-stop shop in crime. Um, what actually I think you'll find is happening is those high court advocates in particular who want to specialise in advocacy uh, um, are in the end moving across to the bar because it gives them the opportunity to do more of it, to improve their skills and to do the very, the very best of work. And, and I see that as a market working very well. Um, you know, when you want to, to move in one particular part of branch of the profession that specialises, you move towards that branch. I think that's a, that's a good no, thing. I, I would encourage the government to leave us alone, frankly, and it has much better things to um, apply its mind to. Well, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I just if we could just round out this conversation with a, a quick look at uh, at who will be the point 
man or woman in the Lord Chancellor's position uh, uh, in the uh, when when the new government is formed, uh, the bar has been very firm, I think, or very clear that it thinks that there there should be a new Lord Chancellor. I, I'm not sure whether the Law Society has really nailed its colours to the mast on that, and indeed legal executives. Andrew, you first, as I say, the bar has been very firm or very clear, it seems to me, uh, suggesting that there should be a new Lord Chancellor. Is that right? And who would you who would you like to see in the job? Uh, I, I think you're reading a little more into our manifesto than you perhaps should. I mean, what, what we're saying in our manifesto is quite clear that there's a duty on the government in relation to the rule of law, all ministers as a matter of law and as a matter of our constitution. There is also an important role for the Lord Chancellor. Now, the current Lord Chancellor was subject to very significant criticism after the first Article 50 judgment, and rightly so. Um, We saw um, much better response in response to the Supreme Court judgment and indeed in her evidence to the Lord's Constitution Committee. Um, And so far as she's concerned, we all make mistakes, the best of us learn from them, and and that is indeed what experience is all about. Um, the role of the Lord Chancellor is an, it's a multifaceted role. That's a very important part of it. But there are plenty of other aspects of the role. And we've worked very well and successfully with her in some of the projects that um, she's got uh, moving and some of the things that we're concerned about, such as uh, diversity in the judiciary and so forth. Um, we, I mean, we will have, have to wait and see. It's a matter for the Prime Minister to reach her judgment. Wilson, would you... Uh would you like to see the Lord Chancellor replaced? I mean, it's—I uh, I hate to bring gender politics into this, but it must be—it must be uh, a good thing to see a woman in that role. But uh, she's taken a lot of heat. Is it—is uh, that unfair? I think it has been unfair, considering the um, she's not she's the first woman that's been in place, not the first one um, who hasn't who's not from a legal background, mm. but the others haven't faced the level of criticism for mm. their decisions that she has. So I hope that if the next Chancellor is a f- woman, that she won't be subjected to the same mm. criticisms that Liz Truss has been um, has had to face. And also, regardless of what decision is made, I hope that that person's in post for quite a while to enable some consistency, because it's changed a lot over the past mm. few years. Robert, over to you very quickly. Um, it's, it, can it, we get the law society off the fence on this one? Where does uh, where do you stand on this no, trust we, and her? We play problem? the ball, not the person. Um, <laughs> the the issue is that it's an important role, uh, and we'll welcome anybody with whom we can work in relation to the the importance of the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary and the practitioner population. It's really important that that message is got through. Um, so appoint somebody um, or continue in post understanding and promoting the the rule of law in this country. Well, I'm sure Liz Truss has been listening uh, with, uh, with, with bated breath and her own expectations, and I'm, I should like to thank you all. And now over to Linda Chung, who will interview our latest Lawyer of the Week. With me is Kirsten Chavall, a barrister at Matrix Chambers. Kirsten, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Kirsten acted for the family of 15-year-old Pippa McManus, who died in December 2015, and she acted at the inquest. The inquest jury found that Pippa had killed herself five days after being released from the Priory Clinic Mm. in Altrincham against her family's wishes. Kirsten, what were the challenges and difficulties in this inquest? Um, Well, I think I should say that it it, it wasn't so much in the end the decision to discharge her that was the problem. It was the the, the lack of support that the the family had when when she came home. And I think the main difficulty with this inquest was that Pip had been unwell for so long she was so seriously unwell with anorexia that you know suffering from it for three years since she was 12 um there was an awful lot that the inquest couldn't cover so the family had really 
quite grave concerns at the at the start of Pip's care and treatment that she wasn't receiving um, the care that she needed. But obviously, an inquest can only deal with those matters which materially contribute to the death. And so we couldn't consider all of the stuff that had gone before back in 2013, 2014. We were really only looking at a very limited period of time um, and I think that was probably quite difficult for the family because they they wanted to explore everything that they felt had gone wrong um, with Pip's uh, care uh, in the run-up to her death. And what things had gone wrong that they wanted to raise? Um, I think the I think the, the the lack of any early intervention. I think the family felt that they were struggling for quite a long time at the start to get the medical professionals to take it seriously. Um, they that when they eventually got a diagnosis of anorexia, Pip really became quite unwell. I mean, she she almost died at the point that she was admitted into uh, Stepping Hill Hospital, and I think the family were very concerned that they they just hadn't really been receiving that 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 kind of intensity of support and care um, that that Pip and they really really needed to get on top of the illness. And obviously, we know the best the best chances of surviving or recovering from an illness like anorexia is early intervention, and I think that's what the family felt was 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 really lacking. And what advice would you give other lawyers who have to be involved in an inquest like this? Um, I think um, while focusing on um, quite narrow issues of causation, it's important not to get too focused on the immediate decisions uh, prior to death. So I think this you know, it could have been very easy to be distracted by the decision to discharge PIP um, in and of itself, whereas in fact it was much more complicated than that and you really need to be looking at all of the agencies who are involved in the care and, and keeping an open mind and also bearing in mind that inquests do change and the evidence does change as they as they progress and and being able to adapt very quickly to, to that that narrowing of the issues and that changing of the evidence is something that's very important particularly when you're representing a family and the law you would have enacted is to reform funding for family yes. representation and inquests yes what what difference would what you propose make um, well, I think, first of all, it's very difficult for lawyers to talk about funding without sounding like we're money-grabbing, but um, the position for funding for inquests is that, at the minute, um, you can only get funding for legal representation in very limited circumstances. Um, so really only if, if the, the state satisfied, if the, if the um, legal aid agency satisfied that um, it's necessary to, uh, to, to, to instruct uh, a lawyer so that they're, they're, they can effectively assist with the investigation um, or that there's a wider public interest. And in, in practice, it, it can be very difficult to even get funding at all. Um, and once you do get funding, um, the rates certainly for, for, for solicitors, but also for barristers are extremely low. I mean, it, it, you know, it works out when you when you add up the hours that you, pre- you spend preparing for an inquest, it really works out at less than the minimum wage if you did it on an hourly rate. Um, and I think that's it. That's not to say that lawyers, you know, it's not that we want to earn a fortune. It's just that when you compare what the family is receiving in terms of funding um, and given that the family representatives are often the ones taking the lead at the inquest doing the most work and you compare it to um, those representing the state so if you're an inquest against the police or the prison or the NHS they will always have legal representation and you know they are much better funded and it's all public money (laughs) so it's difficult to see why the family you know, a has to struggle to get funding in the first place, and B once they've got funding, you know everything's under resourced. You, you know it it just so I think my my reform would be just kind of 
balancing the scales a little bit so that everybody's being paid on a par and that everybody's equally resourced um, and so it doesn't feel quite so much like you're the poor relation of the inquest process. Kirsten, thank you very much. You're welcome, thank you. Thank you all very much for taking part and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Mm-hmm.